All right, we're gonna pull away from the ramp now. So this is us pulling out of a spot after they have strapped down everything and getting in the car. We're right by the Anna Maria Island sign. We're getting ready to pull off onto the road. It's 12.32. And we're waiting for traffic to pull out. And as you can hear, there's a lot of traffic on this road. There are ca we're, we're, people, cars are coming right off the bridge. So they're coming right off the bridge. You even have to wait to be able to pull out. Now this happened in August 1st, 1980, and we're here in November, just um, the day before Thanksgiving. So it's two months, three months different. But we're pulling out, we're pulling out, and it happened, the shot happened right here right here because they jackknifed and went right into behind that sign right there. So literally it was not even a minute, it was not even 30 seconds. And it shot and it jackknifed right into there. Now we're about ready to approach the intersection where the store was. And we're going to go through the intersection and I'll tell you when that's happening. Because Matsky had to have seen him in that short of time, jump out of his car and he's already following him. At this point, somehow he saw him go through this light, we're going through it now, and we're getting ready to turn left on the road behind Publix. So in the amount of time I've been telling you from when the shots fired, that's how quick the colonel saw him and jumped into his sports car and saw the bicycling man. And we don't know what exactly, how far he saw him ride, but as soon as you make that left, you're, there's a CVS parking lot, which was another parking lot right there, but there's the one for Publix. Uh, a few steps up where that just car came out. So right here we're pulling into the back of Publix and there's a road that goes behind it. We don't have to pull in. We can go down and see what's back behind it. Because Matsky pulled in there and then I want to see if there's any other entrance back there. You can go ahead straight. The bike? You've even gone back there. You've gone back there. Well, go. You can go back there, but what we're, there's no no driving back behind the thing, you see? Look, yes. it's blocked off. Now, was it then? I don't know. There's a stone, you can't go behind the thing. It's all grass right off the road though. So he could have, on a bike, gone behind those bushes, right behind the behind there. Tossed it behind those bushes, and then came in this entrance. Now we're in the other entrance of Publix. We're turning and left. And this is the side of, that he probably came up, the side the, of the other end of the store. We're right here. All of this is so close. Yeah, we're up by the loading dock, and as we come out the front, he was parked in one of these first lots. Excuse the sound, we're passing all the loading docks. But as you come out, <coughs> right here, this is where he was parked. I don't think all this was here, so I think it was just plain, you know, plain lot. So, that's how quick it was. That's how close the locations are. We just drove from one to the other. This is where the car parked right here. Yeah, it was right, right here. So that was it. Three minutes and 34 seconds got us from the boat ramp, past the scene where the boat and the car jackknifed off the road, to the foodway parking lot. And, you know, I want to say this first to be fair to the locals and tourism and whatnot. I highly recommend Anna Maria Island as a vacation spot. 
It was lovely. We stayed at a place called Cedar Cove Resort. And it is just a glorious, laid-back community right on the water. The best part about the vacation for me was tooling around in the golf cart on that seven-mile-long island every day. On the island, golf carts are currently able to drive anywhere because the speed limit is 35 miles an hour pretty much wherever you go or slower. Now, Manatee Avenue, which the boat ramp is on, just after you come over the bridge, is 35 miles per hour, and our golf cart topped out at that speed. Given there was traffic on the road the day of the incident, I think we can estimate that the car would not have been going any faster than 25 or 35 miles an hour when the shootings began, and possibly even less than that. But since the car and the trailer ended up off the road, wrapped around a thin tree, we can't discount the possibility that during the fight that ensued inside the vehicle, Dr. Dumois hit the gas pedal during that struggle, and that gave the vehicle further momentum. I want to start with the witnesses that saw what they thought at the time was a vehicle accident just off of Manatee Avenue. Robert D. was heading east, right for the station wagon on Manatee Avenue when he saw what he first thought was firecrackers exploding inside the vehicle. He saw the driver put his hand up to his face and slump over in the seat. There were two people in the front seat, he said, and as the driver went down, so did the passenger. He said the station wagon swerved toward him into oncoming traffic before swerving back in the other direction. As he passed, he looked in his rearview mirror and he saw the station wagon and boat slide off the north side of the road. He said there was an awful lot of smoke that he thought were from the tires as it skidded around the road before the station wagon came to a stop. He had slowed to almost a stop when he saw, still in his rearview mirror, a man get out of the crashed vehicle and move around the car. At the time, he assumed the man was tending to other people in the vehicle. To his recollection, this person had a light-colored shirt and, he assumed, blue jeans, but there was a lot of smoke and he couldn't be sure. A man named Lewis was coming from the opposite direction that day, having just crossed the bridge. The station wagon pulling the boat was ahead of him, along with a few other cars, when Lewis heard a bang and saw the vehicle going crazy in the road, as he described it, before slamming against a tree out in the grass off the shoulder of the road. He didn't see anyone exit the vehicle as he pulled over to the side of the road and then ran to the accident scene. He saw two kids laying on the ground, half in and half out of the vehicle, one on top of the other. Lewis climbed into the station wagon because he saw that the man in the passenger seat had blood pumping from his wound, so he removed his shirt and wrapped it around the neck of the front passenger. Another Robert, Robert S., was at the light on Manatee Avenue at the intersection near the foodway, headed in the direction facing the oncoming station wagon. He immediately thought fireworks when the bangs went off, two of them. He said the driver had no shirt on and was turned with his back to the glass, fighting with the person in the back seat. After the shots, he saw a white male behind the driver reach over and grab the steering wheel. The vehicle started going out of control just as he passed, and in his rearview mirror, as the vehicle impacted the tree and was still shuddering, he said a man jumped out and was in, quote, a heck of a big hurry. 
as he ran around the vehicle. He described this man as tall and slim, and again, light-headed, dressed in trousers and a shirt. He thought light trousers and a dark shirt. And he also thought the man had a baseball cap on. Theodore, another witness, was headed east into town when he noticed a car about five or six car lengths in front of him acting strangely, veering side to side. He described this occurring with quite a bit of surrounding traffic, so he slowed down and moved over a bit. As he got closer, he saw the driver turned all the way around in his seat with his back toward the windshield, fighting someone behind him. He described it as, quote, a couple guys really giving it a little fist fight. He remembers saying to his wife, look at these nuts fighting inside that car, not watching where they're going. Then he heard two muffled bangs that his wife initially thought was backfire. But he said, no, they're shooting in that damn car. He said the car swerved one more time and then jackknifed and went off the road with dirt flying everywhere. After the dust settled just a bit, he saw someone running toward the road from the car. He was wearing light brown cutoffs, and he thought it looked like someone from the island, someone local. By the time they reached the bridge, he and his wife were discussing whether they should go back. They decided they would, but they had to go all the way across the bridge and make a U-turn, which he said took about eight minutes. By the time they made it back, a police officer had just arrived and pulled one of the boys all the way out of the vehicle. Hal was probably that man that Theodore saw in the brown cutoffs running across the road. Hal was a local, and he was headed east, facing the station wagon when he saw it jackknife and spin into the grass ahead of him. He saw the back door of the driver's side fly open, a white male hop out of the car, and a boy fall out. Hal said that the perpetrator wasn't carrying anything at the time, that he ran around the vehicle to the side and grabbed a 10-speed bike from inside the boat. Hal thinks that he assessed the scene for about 15 seconds when he reached the vehicle, and his assessment is disturbing. The driver was sitting upright, conscious, and moaning with his neck bent over, his hands on his face, his eyes open, and then he went limp and his head fell back. He said the passenger was very much conscious, looking around with his eyes open. He said one of the little boys was hanging out of the door that the perpetrator had exited, and the other little boy was curled in a ball, laying on his side on the seat. Hal immediately ran to the nearby condominiums to try to get someone to call for help. During his witness statement, this back and forth occurred. Chief Shanafelt. The man that got out of that car when you first saw that door open and this individual step out of the car? Did anything unusual happen at that time? Hal. No, there was a little bit of eye contact between us because he seen me coming across the street and then I seen him going across the car and there was traffic coming so I had to wait till the traffic stopped and I was crossing the street when he got the bicycle. It's relevant that Hal had to wait for traffic before he crossed because that tells us that there was traffic, significant enough that he had to wait to cross a two-lane road. Once he reached the condos, Hal was unable to get help. Nobody answered their doors. He even saw someone looking out a window on the second floor, 
so he ran upstairs, but the man wouldn't open up the door. He just yelled through his door that he had already called an ambulance. So Hal ran back downstairs and rushed right back over to the crime scene. He said by then there were about 15 people standing around. The victims were still in the same position as when he'd seen them earlier. He said the sprinklers were on and there was a guy trying to keep them from spraying everyone. So Hal ran to the side of the boat and grabbed a pair of pants and put them over the sprinklers and then he found a shirt and he put that over another sprinkler. It's possible that if both of these items came from inside the boat, that they belonged to Dr. Dumois. Raymond and the boys were both wearing their clothes, shirts and shorts, when the shooting occurred. But the doctor himself was only wearing his bathing suit at the time. Hal described the perpetrator as being 25 to 30, with, yet again, sun-bleached or off-blonde, sun-streaked hair, shoulder length, and full. He said it was wavy, like he had a permanent that had grown out. He thought he was about 150 pounds, average build, and he wasn't sure, but he thought he was wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt. After he thought about that shirt a bit, he said maybe it was white and red striped. That's what came to mind. He said the bike was red, with thin tires, and the kind of handles that curved down. Notably different than how Raymond described it, white with a little blue and red trim. Now before we move on to the witnesses at the foodway, I want to take a moment to compare the other differences in the witness statements with regard to the perpetrator. The age and build is fairly consistent, but all of these witnesses say lighter hair, where Raymond Barrows had said dark, almost black. Also, two of these witnesses say jeans and a light shirt. One of them says light trousers and a dark shirt. Those are significant inconsistencies. Suffice to say, that doesn't make the job of law enforcement any easier. Now let's move on to the other crime scene and the witnesses at the foodway store. Lena was in her car in the parking lot after she and her son had been shopping. She saw two men who seemed to be arguing. She couldn't tell what was said, and she didn't even know what drew her attention to them, but she happened to look back in a rearview mirror and saw a tall young man with a small black gun, shoot the other guy. Oh my God, he shot him, she exclaimed, and thought that the perpetrator heard, because he immediately looked in her direction. Lena saw the shot, but she didn't know that the man had been hit. The sports car suddenly drove away with no head visible in the driver's position, and so she presumed that the man inside had ducked down to avoid being hit because he had started to pull away from the other guy while they were still arguing, she said. The sports car then did an arc in the parking lot, driving in a half circle until it crashed into another vehicle, suggesting that when Matsky was shot, he instantly slumped over to the side, and the steering wheel may have been engaged in a way that, with his foot still on the gas, it traveled in that arc until it was stopped by an obstruction. Lena believed that the weapon that she saw was a revolver because the end of the barrel was more round than the automatic that the officer showed her for comparison when she was interviewed. She described the perpetrator as around 5'9 or 6 feet, light build, around 140 pounds with medium-length dark brown hair, sort of curly, no part, just a bit over his ears. 
She thought he was 25 to 30 years old, and she did not think he was wearing a shirt. She described the perpetrator's vehicle as that new brown color, sort of like my curtains, gold or rusty brown, rust like a rust red or rust brown, but more brown than red. Fairly new, she thought, something like a Ford LTD, but she admitted that she wasn't up on cars. So now we're back to witnesses saying the dark hair. The next witness, Dana, exited the foodway carrying a sack of groceries. She had just approached her vehicle near the entrance when she heard the shot to the right of her. She thought it was a firecracker at first and turned in the direction of the noise. She saw a man run and get into a vehicle. She described him as tall, close to six feet, medium build with wavy brown hair, down to between his ears and shoulders. She wasn't sure, but she didn't think he had a shirt on either. But she said by the time she turned around, he was obstructed by the open car door, so she couldn't speak to what he was wearing on his bottom half. She said, after he got in his car, that little sports car went wild, and I watched it. This is Colonel Matsky's car, the Fiat, after he'd been shot. Although she didn't realize that he had been shot at the time. She watched the sports car crash into another car in the parking lot, and then she looked back at the perpetrator's vehicle. He took off, moving too fast for her to get the license plate, so she yelled to another woman in the lot, Get that license plate number! She said that the woman she spoke to was so shook up, she couldn't. Dana did recognize, however, the shape of the state of Florida on the license plate. She was pretty sure of that. Dana also said, I didn't think he was as old as what they said in the paper. Didn't look that old to me. Mid-twenties, maybe close to thirty. But I didn't think he was any older than that. She described the perpetrator's vehicle as rust-colored, two-door, fairly new, in good shape, maybe a year or two old. Dana said she never saw any bicycle, and nobody else in that foodway parking lot did either. That woman that Dana had called out to about the license plate, we're going to call her Bathing Suit Lady. Bathing Suit Lady was, in fact, the one who was really shook up at the scene, according to other witnesses. But later, she was upset as well, because photos, including bystanders, appeared in the local newspapers in the days to follow. Raymond Barrows himself, as you heard in the last episode, when he was interviewed by law enforcement, was upset that his name and address had been printed in the paper, a particularly egregious act by the media, given there was a killer on the loose. Now, Bathing Suit Lady and her husband had crossed over the bridge and onto the island after picking up some food to eat. They had been eating in the car, she said, and they passed the Kingfish boat ramp and saw a station wagon towing a boat that had already jackknifed. She said it looked to her like a man was hanging out of the window and her husband thought somebody might have been pinned underneath the boat. Because they saw the cars already stopping, they headed directly to the foodway to call for help. Bathing Suit Lady mentioned that she had been mugged the previous year, and she said at that time nobody had stopped to help her. So she said she wanted to stop because she would feel better about the situation if she stopped to call for help. So her husband got out to use the payphone, which was at the south side of the grocery store, if you're standing in the parking lot looking at the store, that would be the left side, the left corner. And they didn't park in one of the angled parking spaces. 
but they rather pulled up nearer to the phone so that their car was actually directly facing the action to follow. Bathing suit lady sat in the car while her husband made the call, and she noticed a man walking toward him. Her husband never saw that man because his back was to him while he was on the phone. And she had a fleeting thought in that moment that he was going to rob her husband. Perhaps spurred by her uneasiness at what they had just seen at the accident, or maybe she was hyper-aware of danger, having previously been mugged. Within that fleeting thought was the concern that this stranger could have given her husband a run for his money, because they were about the same size, around six feet tall. Suddenly, the man turned away from her husband, though, and he went back in the other direction. So at that point, she looked away, thinking she was just being silly. She looked back down at her food, and it was then that she heard a pop. While she never saw the gun, she saw the man move his hand and realized it was the same man that had started to approach her husband. She described the man as about 6'1", 200 pounds, large-framed, like her husband. She said he wasn't muscular, though, not real thin or fat. And notice, while she's describing the man as 200 pounds and large-framed, Lena, the previous witness, described him as 140 with a light build. Bathing suit lady thought that he was wearing red swimming trunks, similar to OP or Ocean Pacific, those beach trunks that were popular back then. She did not remember him wearing a shirt, and she even described him as having tanned shoulders. She described his hair as medium length, covering his ears, not flat back or extremely full, but described it as a popular style that a lot of the young guys wore at the time. Interestingly, like Hal, she said that it might have been a perm, not like an afro, loose curl, she said, and it was dark brown. She put his age around 23 or 30 years old. She didn't notice his eyes and surmised that she had seen him from 30 to 50 feet away. What she remembered most was that he was walking right toward her husband. She said when she heard the pop and looked up, the perpetrator was watching the sports car move across the parking lot. As soon as it crashed into another vehicle, she realized the man had shot him. She thought she heard someone yell, he shot that man, and she jumped out of her car and ran further into the lot to try to get the tag number. That got his attention, and he looked directly at her. That's why she was so scared. She knew that he knew she'd seen him. Bathing suit woman described the vehicle as two-tone brown, darker brown on the full vinyl top, and a tan brown on the bottom. Like other witnesses, she described it as not a brand new vehicle, but it wasn't junky either, average looking, maybe a 76 or 77, so three or four years old at the time. When asked if she heard the perpetrator say anything, she said, no, sir, but he did say something to him, I think, but I couldn't hear anything. But I seem to remember that he, the thing that I remember most is the fact that since the reports have come out in the paper, everyone seems to think that this man followed him from the previous accident. But it seems to me that the younger man, the killer, approached that other man, and he didn't approach him. Because if I remember right, the man didn't even quite get out of his car. Looked like he was going to, and then he didn't. Her husband, who had been on the phone, first thought the sports car had backfired and the older man had a heart attack 
causing the accident, which is a great example of perception. They were feet away from each other and both perceived things very differently. Perceptions can color witness statements, and that's something that a good law enforcement officer knows to take into account when they do interviews. So these foodway parking lot witnesses all described the perpetrator as not wearing a shirt, which seems to indicate that he could have removed it on the way from one crime scene to another. Did he stash the shirt and the bike somewhere before he made it to his waiting vehicle? It seems strange that nobody saw him put the bike in his trunk. Bathing suit lady noted that there was no bike rack on the vehicle, and the sports car, the Fiat, driven by Colonel Matsky, entered the parking lot ahead of them. So what was happening with them and what was happening with Colonel Matsky was happening in tandem. They were headed for the phone, and Matsky was looking for the killer. From the killer's perspective, that might have felt like two different vehicles coming right in his direction with people inside who all knew what he had just done. But he wasn't in the vehicle at the time that any of the witnesses first saw him, suggesting that he could have ditched the bicycle somewhere and was walking to his vehicle when both Bathing Suit Lady and Colonel Matsky pulled into the lot. Or perhaps he was able to get the bike in the car before anyone noticed. My first thought would be that if he ditched it, he ditched it behind the foodway, the most convenient and common sense place he could have done so, given the proximity of the two crime scenes, the direction he traveled, and the fact that Colonel Matsky appears to have been hot on his tail. But police say they searched that whole area around both scenes and never found a bike or a weapon or a bloody shirt or any evidence at all. The thing is, we don't know at what time they did those searches. It seems to me that those two scenes were very chaotic as they unfolded, and that search could not have happened immediately. It's certainly possible that the perpetrator left the foodway scene and was somehow able to dump the car and return in another vehicle not long after to pick up any evidence that he had stashed, particularly if this was someone familiar with the island and the area. I want to end this episode with a note about witness identification and memory. On their website, the Innocence Project states that mistaken identifications are the leading factor in wrongful convictions, and they contributed to approximately 69% of the more than 375 wrongful convictions in the United States overturned by post-conviction DNA evidence. Although we would like to think when we hear witnesses describe what they saw as being solid evidence, witness evidence can be tricky at best and unreliable at worst. Perception of incoming stimuli is processed differently by different people. For example, in this case, multiple people thought they heard firecrackers, not a gun firing. We have hair color and body weight descriptions that vary quite a bit as well as clothing descriptions that vary from wearing shorts to jeans. You've got blonde hair, brown hair. The thing about the blonde versus the brown hair that bothers me is that everyone except for Raymond at the initial scene said lighter hair and everyone at the second scene said darker hair. Is it possible that he had a disguise, a wig? Hard to say. Hal sensed that the shirt that he originally called white could have had red stripes. 
Is it possible that what he perceived as stripes were smears of blood? And that's why the perpetrator removed the shirt from one scene to the next? It makes sense that he would remove a bloody shirt when traveling from one crime scene to the other in order to fade into the background. It's certainly hard to imagine that he had not been covered with blood, given the close proximity of the shootings and the vehicles and the amount of blood inside that station wagon. These people took shots to the head, and he was barely a foot from them. But none of the witnesses near the accident were up close to the perpetrator, and by the time he got to the foodway, where some of the witnesses were closer, it appears that his shirt had been removed. Personal experiences and biases can also factor into witness accounts. Here, many of the witnesses thought the man exiting the vehicle was running around the car for helpful rather than nefarious reasons, so they turned their attention away from him. Hal didn't even see him with the bike after he lifted it out of the boat because he was more concerned with the victims, the children that he saw in particular, as you'd expect. Hal said this, I didn't pay any attention to him. When I first seen him go across the street, I thought maybe there was somebody in the car or in the back of the boat, you know, or he wanted to get something out. And the car was steaming and everything, and the first thing that came to my mind was he was trying to get somebody else out of the back of the boat because he thought the boat might explode or something. So I stood there, and when he put the bike down, I was just starting across the street. So probably by the time I got there and, and stood and looked at everybody, he'd already taken off, and I didn't pay any attention to him. It didn't even enter his mind that the man had just harmed the people in the vehicle. And that's because, generally, humans are wired to follow the need to render assistance. And thank goodness for that. But nobody at that scene initially thought they had witnessed a shooting. They thought they were seeing a car accident, and they were rightly tending to the injured. And just to jump off of that, any criticism of the police at the crime scene and not getting it cordoned off quickly enough is probably not valid criticism. There were sprinklers going off. There were multiple people stopping, touching things, trying to grab people out of cars. All of these people were trying to help. And while it certainly didn't help for evidentiary purposes later on, it's hard to imagine that unfolding any other way that it did because of how the accident occurred. In the next episode, we'll go over the timeline of events. Stay tuned.